Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. You have no idea how many times we've talked about darning on this show. We're really into darning, by the way. Oh, good. The idea of darning, not, we haven't. Yeah, none of us has actually ever darned anything. But <laughs> we talk the talk. This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and The Wall Street Journal. This week, we're taking secondhand September all the way to the top. Ultra-luxury re-commerce with Sarah Davis, the founder and president of Fashion File, where you can find the pre-loved luxury stuff of dreams. Hermes handbags, Saint Laurent sandals, Patek Philippe watches, and Bottega Veneta boots. Sarah has over 20 years of experience in luxury resale and is committed to this market with a passion and intelligence we all really admire here, and we can't wait to talk with her. As always, we'll look at the week's headlines and see how the fashion industry is or isn't making progress to sustainability. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Rachel Kibbe of Circular Services Group is in New York. Rachel, how's it going? It's going great. Oh, come on, tell the truth. Can I (laughs) What did you do yesterday? Can I use this airtime to complain? Yes, you can. I got a COVID booster and I feel like... Feel like absolute crap if we're going to be honest. So, um, but I'm happy to be here with everybody. For the record, she looks fantastic and she sounds great. So we'll believe her. <laughs> just she like claims wedding. <laughs> <laughs> and the CEO of Thrilling, Shilla Kim Parker, is coming to us as always from South Salem, New York. Hey, Shilla. By the way, a little congratulations here. You were just named one of Inc. Mag's female founders of 2022. You are on Woo. the same list as Tori Birch. Congrats. Woo. Thank you so much. Thank you. I am. Um, uh, I'm recovering from wisdom teeth extraction, and so that was that was that was <laughs> welcome news. To- <laughs> well, and Christina, what, what's going oh on my with God, you? We are like I know we're a mess. We're all a mess. You and want to talk I, about crutches? Being on crutches. <laughs> I know Christina's on crutches. It's a good thing this and is I'm a podcast. Crutches. Yes, Christina, we gotta hear about Milan. I feel like just based on your articles and your tweets, it's it, the headline's got to be sex toys, crutches, and twins. Oh my. <laughs> Am I allowed? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it was it was actually I have never seen a Milan Fashion Week like this before. It, I mean, mm. it, I just it it used to be people complained about going to Milan because it was just really really good clothes. Oh how boring, right? I mean, because they're <laughs> looking for great editorial content if they're magazine editors and things like that, and clearly Milan designers heard the message and just went all out. And I will say. The first show that I went to was Diesel. A box came to my hotel with the invitation in it, and I opened the box, and it is a hand-blown glass butt plug. <laughs> I am serious. That's... Yeah. And the weekend just went on from there. <laughs> anyway, you know, it was... Um, there was a lot of transparency, which we've seen other places, too. Um, it was a pretty loud and fun week all around. Uh, I have to say, number one collection I saw the whole week, Bottega Veneta, was just absolutely stunningly beautiful and completely fooled me. I'm sitting, I was in the front row and the first three looks go by. One of them, the, the third one was on Kate Moss. And I'm like, flannel shirts and jeans at Bottega? And then my mind is like, what are they trying to take on Brunello Cuccinelli and do this sort of, you know, high-end Banana Republic thing? What's going on here? I find <laughs> they out They got later. skewered by people who didn't know what you're about to say I'm on social sure, media. right? I mean, I was so puzzled. And then, <laughs> right. oh, they're leather that's been made to look. I mean, they were beautiful. I mean, and yeah. talk about investment pieces, right. really. I mean, this, the whole thing was just absolutely genius. So, um, you know, that was a beautiful, that was one of those moments in fashion where you're like, yay, I get to be here and I saw that. Uh, <laughs> Sheila, though, I have, I have to share something with you. I think I mentioned last week that I had purchased a piece on Thrilling. Right, it was which was so a, nice of you. As a, well, it wasn't nice of me. It was like nice of you to have it there for me, right? <laughs> Thank you for the service. I got this Missoni sweater and... I didn't. I had dinner with Angela Massoni, who is the former creative director. She gave up that position last year. Very casual. She's the daughter of the founders of Massoni. No big deal. She's really lovely. And I, by the way, I highly recommend her cookbook. But um, I, it was cold, and I hadn't meant. Normally, I don't wear a designer's clothes to see the designer. I find that awkward. But I didn't. Mm. I needed a sweater, so I wore that sweater. And I walk up and meet her outside of the restaurant. She's smoking a cigarette. She looks me up and down, <laughs> and like gives me this long look. And she says, that's Missoni Sport. It's from the 80s. <laughs> and then she got oh like, my God. a little misty-eyed about it. And I was like, it was such a moment. I didn't even know it was from the 80s. I mean, I could have guessed. Wow. But the fact, and she grabbed it and, and looked at the tag to prove that she was right. <laughs> that is so amazing, first of all, that you met her. <laughs> I mean, I, like, first of all, I know that's an, an everyday occurrence in, the, in your household, but that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> And secondly, that you wore that you wore, and she recognized it. And I shared that story with our team, and our team oh. was emotional oh. and so excited because that's really you know what it's all about. The, you know, this preservation of this beautiful piece of artwork, basically. And the store that it's from is called Kismet Vintage. It's run by these two women in Florida. Just a wonderful shop, and um, just. So lovely and so. Meaningful. I hope you'll tell them too. Absolutely. So that was my that was my Italian. Fashion Week. Let's move on to uh, the news. Rachel has some, um, she has some strong opinions about some things, all of which came from Sourcing Journal, which is like our Bible, by the way. Thank you, Sourcing Journal. You want to you wanna tell us what you're thinking about right now, Rachel? There were three stories. One was about um, there's an activist group sort of going after Lululemon for their use of coal, their supplier's use of coal in production. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, being pinned on the brand, which is justifiable. And then 
there was the announcement that um, PVH um, invested in um, AII's Climate Fund, which is a $250 million decarbonization fund. Which we talked about month or so ago, right? A yeah. month ago, yeah. It was one of our one of our first episodes. We talked about how that was a, a bold commitment, and yeah. it, it's a it's a a complicated part of the supply chain, very front end. And then there was this other story about how um, BCG, a large consulting firm, did a study that reported about eighty percent of consumers in a nineteen thousand person study, so a formidable size study. Um, said they're concerned about sustainability, but only one in seven will pl- pay a premium. And I'm gonna I'm gonna tie this together because, so going back to there's 477 yoga teachers and 500 yoga students across 28 countries protesting Lululemon's use of coal. Um, in, in their supply chains. Meanwhile, I, what I know is that um, uh, Lululemon has invested in AII, whose primary goal, the first of its kind, um, along with H&M and, and Schmidt Family Futures and now PVH, mm-hmm. um, it, their, their primary function is to gather together to raise money to support suppliers to transition from coal to at least electricity and uh, optimally renewable energy. And that's what it's going to take to transition from coal. The majority of our clothes are made in countries that use coal. In fact, India gets 70% of its energy from coal. China uses five times the amount of coal that India uses. Um, And these are the countries that make the majority of our clothing, like I said. And it's going to take investment that you can't necessarily put on a label so this is why consumers are confused about sustainability, because a lot of sustainability isn't something that you're going to communicate at point of sale. It's on the front mm. end of the supply chain. It's got geopolitical implications. You know, Lululemon, their stock right now is about over $300. They're doing very well. They're growing exponentially. For them to produce here in the United States, you would have to pay a lot more for their clothes, Um or for them to produce in in a country that perhaps does not use coal, their clothes would be a lot more expensive. Um, and if they were, even if they were to choose a different supply chain, and I'm not saying they shouldn't, that doesn't eliminate the fact that the countries where the majority of our clothes are being made use coal. And it's not their fault, I guess, is what I'm saying. And I'm saying that you think it's are, not the brand's fault that we need to we need to put pressure on these nations to change their utility. Not pressure on these nations. We need to invest in these nations. Like, okay. the brands need to pay their suppliers to transition from coal. I don't even think it's pressure on these nations. We've already put pressure on them in the form of labor abuse and, um, you know, uh, having them, you know, pitting suppliers against each other and not being loyal to them and only buying from the the, the, the cheapest one. Like, it's, it's, it's our fault as, as the West for putting countries in this position and basically um, uh, requiring of them that they continue to use coal in a lot of ways. But to transition, we have, they have to, brands have to pony up. And I have to say that Lululemon is. But if they're going to pony up, why don't they pony up and produce in a c- nation that already has a cleaner energy supply? Well, I was going to say they they could, they could, but if Lululemon did that one brand, that doesn't change the, you know, 99.9% of mm-hmm. other brands that are using, these, right. these, these brands all use the same suppliers. Like, 
it would have to be every single brand pulled out their their operations in these countries that use coal and and the 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 labor impact that would have yeah. would be really phenomenal too and so um it's complicated <laughs> as most things that we talk about on this show but it also sounds like then um what we're seeing is more brands joining AII and perhaps there yeah. is going to be this investment that starts to transition yeah. India and China from so much coal. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, absolutely. I think it's going to take a long time, but that, that it's going to take concerted uh, effort to um, coalesce and, and invest together. No one brand can pay for it on their own. We got to dig into that more. It's a very complex area of fashion and so early in the, and we're talking about the, the fuel that's used to power the plants that make the clothes. So that's like the yep. earliest part of the, the, yep. the manufacturing scope three. chain. Yeah. Scope three, which, um, I, uh, is a term that I hear all the time now. And I don't think I knew it three weeks ago, but mm -hmm. okay. I want to move on. We have a great question from a listener named Gina. And, um, I really want to get to it quickly for her because, and for a lot of people because I don't think she's alone in asking this. The question, what she said was, I was wondering what organizations would you suggest would be good places to invest in? Nonprofits or businesses that are making huge strides that I could donate to, become a customer, or even work or volunteer for? So she's wanting to, she's wanting to invest or work toward more sustainable fashion. Where can she put her money or her time? Great question. I've fallen in love with this small organization out of Los Angeles. I don't know if Christina, if if if, if you've come across them. They're called Sway Sew mm -hmm. Shop. S U A Y. Yes. yes. Um, founded in 2017 by Lindsay Rose Medoff. Um, they have a 5,000 square foot facility with about 30 employees. Um, I love them because um, they do a lot of activism. Um, first, they do a lot of activism on behalf of garment workers' rights in LA. LA is um, the garment worker capital of the US. They have right. more than 46,000 folks, mostly undocumented women from Latin America and Asia. Um, uh, often underpaid, working very long hours. Right. Um, a lot of uh, fast fashion companies and other apparel brands will um, use that type of labor so that they can say "made in America." Right. Um, but in any case, so she, she, so she and her organization have done a lot of activism on behalf of garment workers' rights, and they do a lot of really cool, fun things. No matter where you live in the country, um, so you can send in clothing items for repair. But they also do um, custom upholstery. So if you're looking for cushion covers or shower curtains or new coverings for your couch cushions, um, they can make that um, for you out of um, donated clothing textiles that they basically upcycle. Um, they also have this cool offering, which I love, which, um, which is memory quilts. They can take, like, say you want to get rid of some old baby clothes and um, T-shirts and whatever it is, tea towels, and you can send them up to a dozen garments, and they'll stitch them together into these beautiful memory quilts That's wonderful. for you and send it back to you. They have a weekly community dye bath where you can, like— I was just going to talk about the community dye bath. I wish I have things— I wish I lived closer. <laughs> I know, same. Where um, you can look up their dye schedule and send things in to get dyed. Um, they have a line of products that they've made, upcycled pillows, clothes. Anyway, just a really cool organization. You could be a customer. Yeah, so the way that you can support is you can be a customer. Or you can send them in clothes, your old clothes, and they'll use those old clothes to, to upcycle them in, in all the ways I just talked about. 
I was going to mention um, closer to home for us, Sheila. There's a there's a nonprofit called Custom Collaborative, um, led by Ngozi Okaro. Uh, it's a Harlem-based nonprofit that offers government workforce training programs, business incubation, and um, also has a worker-owned cooperative. Um, and they take donations. Um, I would also suggest uh, Remake, who's doing a lot of policy work. They got the garment workers' rights bill passed in California, um, and they're also working on the federal bill that's on deck, um, the Fabric Act. They've done a lot of advocacy, and they've been able to pressure fashion companies, especially those who uh, did not pay their workers millions and millions of dollars uh, during the pandemic Mm -hmm. to pony up. So they do a lot of good work. So I would suggest those two. Custom Collaborative here in in, in New York City and Harlem and, and Remake. Okay. Thank you, guys. We could probably do a whole list. There's so many more. We'll keep thinking about that. But Gina, thank you for that really good question. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Okay, it's our final secondhand September pod. Let's bring on Sarah. But first, a trivia test. In a recent study of eBay apparel sales by Chrono24, the luxury watch experts, the most popular secondhand brand was Gucci. And I want to dare you guys to guess what the second most popular brand was. Okay, but a clarifying question. Is it for luxury or all apparel? Luxury, is what they, that's how they defined it. Chanel. Anybody else? Chanel doesn't let, isn't allowed to, are they? Like, doesn't Chanel sue everybody? Yes, but they're still everywhere. You can buy our bag, but you can never yes. let go of it. <laughs> Don't sell our stuff. Hermes. Louis Vuitton. Oh, oh that's a good one. one. Ding, 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 ding. Ray-Ban. 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 Oh, I don't even consider that luxury, but I guess it is. Yeah, it's for very accessible luxury. It's a very, very, well, it had some very expensive ones. Apparently there are, I didn't realize this, but some real collector item. Really? um, Ray-Bans out there and old ones and whatnot. Anyway, Hmm. that blew me away. That's why I had to bring that up. It's just like weird, weird things happen in luxury resale. I Um, love my Ray-Bans. I don't like to plug brands, but I I sincerely love. Yes, they're the only sunglasses I, I buy. They just last forever. We have been dying to talk with Sarah Davis, the founder of Fashion Files, since we started the podcast. That's the absolute truth. She knows so much about this industry and what it takes to be successful in resale. The global market for secondhand apparel is predicted to more than double to $218 billion by 2026 from $96 billion in 2021. So Sarah seems to have picked a winner of a business. She's been at it since 1999 and has grown Fashion File into a leading re-commerce site for ultra-luxury accessories, shoes, watches, and bags. We are so happy to have her on. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much. It really is a thrill for me to be here. I'm serious. I, all Good. of you. I, I, and honestly, I've been reading your works for like 20 years. Not me oh, to God. date you or me, but <laughs> so it's an lot. honor. It's an honor. <laughs> okay. That's super. Listen, Sarah, I swear every week I get another press release, it seems to have increased to more than one a week these days, about a luxury brand launching launching their own resale operations. Today, we got one from Balenciaga, uh, the French label. And uh, I'm just curious, I think about you, you know, 
you dominate this space, but now you've got all this competition from the brands themselves. It sound, it reminds me a little bit of what's happened, what happened in retail when multi-brand stores are suddenly, suddenly facing competition. Are you worried that this is going to eat into your business or how are you, how are you dealing with it? No, I, I'm actually, I'm a huge fan of resale. I, that's how I got into the business, like shopping when I was young, consignment stores, thrift stores. I've been, you know, at a necessity because I bought my own clothes. And so when you buy your own clothes, when you're a teenager, you, you know, you shop the, you shop Goodwill and Salvation Army basically. Um, but that was, you know, that's my roots. And I just believe the market is ginormous. And so I think there's room for so many different players. There's definitely room for the brands, um, you know, and I, I see also um, that when you look at the luxury brands, um, they're all kind of, it's so cool to see in the last 10 years, just the change in the way, the mentality of these brands is hmm. we used to communicate with the brands through cease and desist letters. And oh now, <laughs> no, but now yeah. I, mean, I, I joke, <laughs> but not really, no, but um. But really, that now we we're having just such amazing, really thoughtful conversations with almost every brand. You know that um, that peop- that every brand is saying, not if, but when, and how, and what is the best you know way that we should enter um, resale for our brand. And as you know, it's a really delicate balance between supply and demand for these brands to be able to maintain their brand value, their pricing structure, um, you know, and so I think they're very thoughtful. Um, The thing I will say when you look at resale, whether it's the luxury players, and there's only a few who really are dipping their toes in at this point, but if you walk in any mall in America, the Madewells, the Levi's, the Lululemons, everybody's doing resale, nobody's doing it alone. There's not a single brand who is like, hey, send us your stuff, and our team is going to Identify oh. it, price it, authenticate it. Everybody's using a partner, and we play that part for some brands, some multi-brand retailers. But everybody's got a partner. There's nobody who's just like, you know, everybody oh. from Patagonia and Eileen Fisher, the OGs of the resale, you know, brands. Everybody's got, everybody's working with someone, and so that's kind of for us. ThreadUp calls it RAS, resale service. I love ThreadUp. And, um, you know, and that's something that we provide as well. And so there's a lot of people, I can think, playing in the space who are saying, hey, let us help you. We okay. are probably the perfect partner for that. That's Sarah, interesting. aside from your relationship with brands and sort of like, you know, the, the conversations you're having with them, can you zoom out a little bit for our listeners and talk about what Fashion File is and sort of what you, how you play in the market and how maybe you're distinct from a thread up? We know, but we'd love for you to yeah, share with absolutely. the listeners. Right. So we buy and sell ultra luxury accessories. So, and, you know, and so we kind of differentiate on the um, ultra luxury part. So we're the very, very high end of the spectrum. Um, We only sell, um, now it's like 84 brands versus if you look at pretty much every other platform, they'll sell thousands of different brands. Our average selling price is $1,700. So, um, you know, it's it's, uh, it's more ultra luxury, (laughs) exactly. Um, And then again, we buy, um, we don't consign. So we buy and sell. So we buy from you, we pay up front. And so for the seller, it's nice. We take out all the work, but also we just take out all the question. You know exactly what your item is going to sell for and you get your paid right away. Um, Secondarily, we, um, you know, it was bootstrapped for 20 years. And then our first investor in 2019 was Neiman Marcus. And this has been an amazing partnership for us. We're in 10 of the Neiman Marcus stores right now, but... What you know? Again, you can take that Gucci backpack that you never really wore that much, and you can walk it into Neiman Marcus, 
drop it off with Fashion File with our team that is there. Um, and you can go, you know, shop shoes or go to have lunch in the cafe. And you're going to get a, a text that says, hey, you've got a check waiting for you. Or if you want to put that on a Neiman Marcus gift card, they're going to give you 10% more. Then the boots you just found are free to you because a gift card is free money. <laughs> <laughs> and so potentially you can use that, you know, use your old purchase to buy something new, um, you know, but a lot of people actually use their their purchase, um, the money that we pay them to buy something that was actually also used, you know, and really continue to, to so it's just, that's kind of the way that we differentiate. I just wanted to clarify, you you don't sell clothing, you sell- um, Accessories. Accessories, right. Just, okay. Why? We specialize in ultra luxury investment pieces that are that really maintain their value. The reality is the products that we sell um, are challenging to sell with on the authentication side. Um, actually, clothes are hard. Like luxury clothes have all been yeah. they're they're altered. It's like yep. you have no idea. Like you, you know, it's sizing like, oh, exactly. Oof. Sizing is painful, and for us, it's like we've been doing this a very long time. We've just found a little niche. By the way, if you walk into most Chanel boutiques in America that's not a flagship, they don't have clothes either. Mm. So, I mean, we kind of it's like really model true. ourselves like the brands, like most, again, if you're in a flagship, you'll have some ready to wear, but most, you know, most luxury handbag boutiques actually only sell what we do, which is, you know, handbags, travel wear, scarves, shoes, belts, fine jewelry, fashion jewelry, shoes, and that's kind of where we sit as well. I love, Sarah, reading about your journey um, starting as a law student um, in the 90s. And then, you know, I think Fashion File is the first resale platform um, ever built. Um, and there is a, a quote in an article in a profile about you that, that talks about how you would take pictures on a 35 millimeter film, on 35 millimeter film, develop them on a floppy disk. You'd receive physical checks from your buyers. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit more of your journey. And I'm also curious... Um, was your initial attraction to the business kind of the thrill of business building? Because um, I know this was this started a little bit as a as a hobby on the side, or or was it the kind of this mission of of sustainability and circularity? Yeah. Um. So interesting. Yeah. I mean, I started because I started selling on eBay. Fashion File was my user ID in 1999. So that's no way. It literally, oh yeah. my god. And so and and back on in those early days of eBay for years. Nobody on the internet had you couldn't process a, a credit card on the internet. Yeah, you, you, everybody. You wait for a physical check to arrive in the mail. That's how you transacted in e-commerce. That's why back in the early days, people were like nobody's. This is going to go nowhere. You know, because it was actually just hard. I mean, eBay didn't have their own photo hosting. You're literally taking these pictures and putting on a photo host at Photo Bucket, and then using <laughs> HTML to bring it into eBay because they didn't have the. So it's an early, but but the other thing was really interesting at the time is it was so obvious that what what I was building needed to happen because I love I what I always love is I love fashion and I love things I can't afford, but yeah. if I buy yeah. them used I can afford them so I've always loved that, um, and but what at the time so I love and frequent my local consignment shop which I still do we're not trying to crush the consignment shops and a lot of them <laughs> sell with you, which I love you know. Um, and, but, you know, it's hard, like you, you know, you're limited by where you live. I mean, there's some amazing consignment shops in New York City or in LA. And there's just, you know, if you live in Birmingham, Alabama, like back, you know, in the eighties, you were limited by your proximity as far yeah. as resale goes. Yeah. And our grandmothers all did resale. This is nothing new. We're not inventing anything here. 
Um, but what we are all doing is adding, you know, scale and technology. You know, and I love, again, just the idea that the, the local the local consignment shop, really great spot in Birmingham or wherever, is able to also sell online. You know, you know, maybe not with their own website. They can get more eyes if they sell or selling on Thrilling or, you know, um, or other platforms. And so, um, anyway, at the time in you know 1999, there was your local consignment shop and there was eBay, and that's it. And eBay in those days was about 99% counterfeit and crazy scams. It was like Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist, where you just don't even know what you're gonna get. Lots of things, lots of listings didn't even have photos because it was so hard. It was just, it was so obvious. It's like, oh my gosh, this would be so killer, you know, if there was a place where it had the volume and scale and all the things that I love. And it was like a trust, a place that people could trust and that could, you know, take some of the friction out. And so it was, seemed really obvious. So I grew the business, you know, over time. I was in law school, like I said. I graduated from law school, and my husband's like, sweet, now you can get a real job. Start making some money. Because I was I was selling on eBay, and I was making— I was feeling pretty good about it, actually, you know? But I wasn't making, like, my big, like, legal— you know, anything yeah, right. justify my years of and my passing the bar. But I'm like, oh, but I kind of like this thing that I'm doing a lot. Like, I don't— <laughs> He's like, my wife is insane. And it's, you know, and at the time it kind of did seem insane, but um, but I did love it. And I think part of it, to your point, is um, that I grew up and my mom, you know, was always like, oh, look at Sarah. She's always finding like these creative ways to make a buck because mm -hmm. I we had no money. I was the oldest of six, ki six kids. And so I would just find ways, you know, like when I was in, went to college, I bought a pair of clippers at Shopco, like a little old department store. I started cutting hair in the men's dorms. I'd never gone to hair school, but I could charge $5 a head. I'd meet the cute boys, get the gossip, and make some money. And so I was always finding a way to make some money. Entrepreneur in the blood. So you told me something that I want to make sure I mention that has stuck with me. We've had one one-on-one -on -one conversation, I believe, and you said something to me that sort of, in all the years of however long I've been working in this space, sort of flips my thinking around luxury and especially ultra luxury. And you mentioned, because we were talking about landfill and sustainability and like keeping product out of landfill. And you said that brand equity in keeping things from landfill is is key. And you, you gave me this example that you could have a bag that was really well made, beautifully made, but it, if it didn't have a logo on it, that was important that people recognized and felt a connection to, it would be more likely to, to land in landfill. Yeah. Um, and now sort of, I would love for you to talk more about that so, so people can sort of, because I think a lot of times people think about luxury and just think it's exclusive and it's out of reach and they, they will never be able to participate or, or they don't have a lifestyle that would, um, they would feel like, um, I know I felt like a poser before thinking about buying luxury, um, but it's changed my thinking around logos and brands. Huh. Well, it's interesting because a lot of people will say, you know, that the reason why um, brands are able to keep their value is because, you know, because they do, they last longer and, the, and they handle resale well because they're just made so well. But part of it is not that. Part of it is the way that we treat these products because of their brand. So we have learned, you know, as you know, like it used to be that brands, you know, Chanel flaps used to have a gold alloy in the hardware. I mean, like actual 20 karat, 
four karat gold in the alloy that was on their hardware. Um, and brands have just continually, over time, now you have a canvas Balenciaga tote that's going to cost you 1800 bucks. But if you buy a yeah. tote from, you know, um, Forever 21, that's, you know, $10 canvas tote, and the Balenciaga tote is better quality, but it's still a canvas tote. I mean, it's like, you know, now to, nowadays you can buy a denim Chanel flap, you know, like the product, yeah. the quality is just different. Um, but what is it that's special about that item? It's partially the the brand and also the, the the investment you made in that item. So if you break the strap on the Forever 21 tote, it's going in the garbage. If you um, break the strap on that um, Balenciaga tote, you're going to get it repaired. If you if your pen explodes yep. in the Balenciaga tote, you're going to take it down. Maybe you get it dyed, you know. And so it's also it's what's really sad that I think we've recognized over time is that our grandmothers. They darned their socks. <laughs> they darned their socks. Yes. Right. If we get a hole yes. in our sock, even those of us who are very conscientious, we're tossing the sock. And that is just a different way of thinking about the products that we buy. And I think that we're a little more careful with the products we spend a lot of more money on. And so we're willing to do those things. Some of them make those repairs yourself or take them to get professional repairs, pay for that. Um, but we think about things we think in a way, in a really kind of a destructive way, um, very consumer focused, um, you know, really throwaway kind of mentality. All of us do mm-hmm. to some degree, even those, even those, those of us who care, when you think about the way that we used to treat the very limited items we had and you darned your socks because you had two pairs of socks. So you had to repair right. them. Sarah, um, what's your, you know, you mentioned that when you were starting out, the, um, fake products in the luxury market were, was maybe around 99%. And I'm curious your point of view about like the state of fraud today yeah. um, and how pervasive it is. And I know that you've invested a lot in terms of your own proprietary um, AI to detect, um, um, to, to authenticate luxury and, and other folks are, are doing similar things or there's kind of off the shelf authenticators and Treppy I've heard yeah. a lot about um, in terms of their partnering with other um, other platforms to, to do the authentication for them. Curious your, your point of view on those solutions. Yeah. How, how, how is, is and is fraud, um, how pervasive is it? And is it a, just a permanent fact of life in the luxury resale marketplace? Yeah, I appreciate the follow-up because I do want to say now, I still shop from eBay. I love eBay. It's one of my favorite resale platforms. And they do a really good job and have a lot of actually... Um, buyer protection and also do a good job of just keeping the counterfeits off the site in the first place. So I just, I do want to put that out there because it was a different era back then. And they've spent, speaking of spending a lot of time and effort and money and resources, they've done a lot in that front as well. And honestly, like I have confidence in, there's not a resale site that, again, I'm a huge user of the real real. I love the real real. Um, I wouldn't buy a Chanel bag from the real real only out of loyalty to my own brand, but I would trust it. I would trust buying a luxury bag, you know, from the real real. Um, I buy a, lo- a lot of other things from the real real, just not a bag. Um, but and so it's, a, and I think that the interesting thing for me is that we have resources, and again, have been studying for twenty years, developing, like you said, not only AI, not only using computer learning, machine learning, things like that, but also HI, human intelligence, because the reality is, good luck with your tool on last season's bag, like. Last, mm. ev- these brands are producing so much product 
at an ever-increasing pace. I mean, they're just getting, you know, we talk about fast fashion. The brands are increasing more than they ever have before. I mean, all, every brand that we're talking about now, when I first started the business, had a very limited offering, very limited selection of seasonal bags, very, very limited, some of them none at all. Um, and now every brand is like hyper-producing and every season it's new textiles, new, you know, new um, hardware. All, and, and when you develop a tool, you use data to develop the tool. And the tool recognizes the authentic and can differentiate with the counterfeit. But if you have no data, the first item you get in and no brand is, we're not, we're not just buying everything from every line, um, you know, and so it just... You know, there's challenges there. That's why you have to have, like, you know, human intelligence as well as also, you know, developing tools that are helpful. Um, as far as automated tools, I'm skeptical in the everyday use. I appreciate that there are services there for people who don't have resources to develop a full. We have a luxury of having a full team, and literally one of our teams is only developing more information and tools for our team and disseminating the information. Nobody, that's a luxury. I actually spoke to a really great consignment shop um, uh, owner just this past week in New York City. And she was saying they have an authenticator on the team, which is great. She's one authenticator, but like the challenge, because they care, they don't want to have counterfeits. They don't want to sell counterfeits, yeah. but like our local consignment shop here that I love, and I'm, I'm there probably every couple weeks, I've never seen a Bottega bag there. They're going to get their mm. first, you know, Bottega, you know, and they're, how are they going to authenticate that? They're hopefully going to use pictures on the website. I actually think, I feel an obligation at Fashion File and, and I think some of the other bigger players, I, I wish there's something we could do to be helpful. I'm not, um, I believe, again, that there's space for all, for everyone. There's customers, they're going to shop my local consignment shop that are never going to download my app and upload some photos sitting in their closet and wait for a quote. And they're just not doing that. <laughs> and it's fine. Like, I'm happy. Like, I, I think there's plenty of space for all of us. There's a lot of different resale brands that are kind of cracking the nut in a different way. And like, we don't want the clothes. Thank you, Real Real, for taking on that challenge. You know, I, you know, I bought this um, turtleneck yesterday at the Real Root in Newport Beach. Their actual physical store <laughs> happened to go there, happened to go across the street. I bought it. Um, and I'm so grateful that they that they are doing that. Like, I love it. And, you know, like I said, I shove all mine. I've got three daughters. We sell all, we send all of our clothes to Thread Up. I buy all my Lululemon leggings for them used. I don't, I've never bought a pair of new leggings for them. <laughs> like, not doing it. Um, but um, and I and so I think there's so many people that are kind of cracking the nut and helping in a different way. Again, I love that all these consignment shops can now be online and can get a bigger audience. And so there's a lot of space there. And I feel an obligation, and I'm not sure how to what to do about it. We've talked about you know potentially doing workshops for local consignment shops on authentication or things like that because it's so hard because I don't believe that there's anyone out there, and I, there's probably some evil people. <laughs> but I, I don't believe all of our friends in resale slash competitors, I know they don't want the counterfeits on their site. I know that they're working hard to develop, you know, the training and tools and all that to keep the product off their site. And it's even more of a challenge the smaller you are because you don't have the team available. And, you know, and so how can we work together to kind of solve that problem? I think one thing the brands are slowly doing and they're not we're not getting access yet, but one day maybe, they're introducing RFID. And mm -hmm. 
they have got now, which is really great, they've got some tools where they're able to scan one of their own bags and they can see information in that bag. We can see that there's RFID in that. In Fashion File, we actually developed an RFID isolator box. We're not trying to hack the actual and read what's on the, on the chip, but just the fact that it has a chip and we can see patterns on the chip. What does a Balenciaga chip look like? The, wow. the pattern that we're reading in RFID versus another, even though we're not actually like reading the, you know, the um, actual, you know, the data that's coming across. But um, whoa, 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 whoa! I gotta. This is this, this is news to me and really fascinating. So you're so these luxury brands are putting RFID in their accessories with information about the bag, but we don't know what that information is. I, Something. Yeah, I, I'm really excited. Like, so I've, I've, because I've looked at resale and I've thought, you know, it'd be really cool is if we had like, you know, like there's the VIN number and a car, and I can, if I, want, yeah. if I can, I can buy a car on Craigslist and I can look up that VIN number and I can see, wow, that ba- that thing was totaled in 2019, mm-hmm. you know, and they didn't tell me or whatever. How cool yep. would it be if there's a luxury identification number and I could scan that item, or I could get information on that and see, oh my gosh, I'm buying a Cartier ring. This ring was actually resized in 2007. It was sold as a seven and now it's a five. And that's just interesting, but it was done by this prominent jeweler. I trust that. It's okay. Or it was done by the brand or whatever, or, you know, kind of seeing the path. Um, There's a, what's called Aura Blockchain Consortium. And that's like LVMH, Prada, um, Richemont, I think Mercedes. There's a bunch of luxury brands that are coming together in this Aura Blockchain Consortium to say, hey, let's come together. And they're, they're kind of, you know, trying to figure out how they're going to work together to tell some of these stories using blockchain technology. You can't tell the whole story without resale. We've reached out to Aura. We're, we've actually had good communication. We're like, we'd love to participate. Like, we feel like this is a way that, yeah. that potentially all of us could learn. And by the way, as consumers, we would all have a better experience. And I don't think, it's not that because we have a VIN system, it didn't crush resale of cars, but it did, right. it did crush counterfeiting. There's no counterfeiting in the automobile industry. Um, it did crush like black mark, some really gray black markety weird stuff and gives us total visibility into the life of that vehicle for safety yeah. reasons and other reasons. And I feel like that would be something that would be really helpful. And I feel like there's some kind of movement like that, but many of the brands we sell most of the brands we sell have, you know, in newer bags or dabbling in this RFID technology. And I think it's probably things like how cool would it be if we could know where it was manufactured, information about the product and all that. But for sure, dates and things like that, materials are on that chip is what we would, um, you know, what we would guess. But yeah. I think it's going to be legislated in the EU. Exactly. As we, we've talked about this, Rachel, but like if that's why, if we could get, I mean, I'm not, I, I would love it. I feel like the, a lot of brands are getting involved in having these conversations. Like I said, we're talking to almost every brand now, which is so exciting. Um, and they're really, the reason they're having the conversation, in America at least, is not because of, in Europe there's legisla- legislation which pushes it along and I love it. But here in the States, they're having the conversations because the customer's demanding it, which I just yep. think is awesome. Um, well, what is Aura saying when you've reached out to them? Are they inviting you? Oh, yeah. So we've had lots of conversations. It's really just the brand, how the brands want, you know, participation from resale. They kind of rule that world. And and mm-hmm. they're all getting more friendly. I, I, I've i said this before, but I, I really think five years from now, every luxury brand will probably be participating. Well, minus 
one, maybe. <laughs> no, I don't know. Maybe a couple. But we'll be participating. Does it start with a C? Yeah. Well, I mean, no, <laughs> or an H. there's nobody, there's no car comp- manufacturer out there's like, we're not doing resale. We're not participating. Right. They all have a certified pre-owned whatever. And it makes all the sense. And by the way, you know, the brands should worry. If your brand doesn't resell well, that's saying something about your brand. You know, yeah. the better your brand resell sells, that says a lot about your brand. And so we feel like the brand should be thanking us for mm-hmm. maintaining the price point. And by the way, justifying their ever-increasing price hikes yep. as resale continues to kind of support from the bottom. And so, um, you know, and also allowing an entry point that is more accessible to all, that is that still feels elevated, but... We sell a lot of really expensive product, and then we also sell pretty much every brand, even Hermes, Chanel. We sell bags for under $500, and they are authentic, and they are vintage, and they are may have a bottle of nail polish that exploded on the inside or a clasp <laughs> that was repaired by someone who didn't do a great job. But if you are you know, love fashion and you're 17 years old and you have a, a, you know, a job three days a week babysitting for someone and save your money and you want to buy an authentic item, you don't want to buy a counterfeit, you can. And so I love, I feel like, again, that we're an entry point for a lot of people as they get into, we're the gateway drug to luxury. (laughs) It's a slippery slope on the all the way up, but yeah. Well, I was going to ask, Sarah, have you seen, who was luxury resale customer 20 years ago, and who is it today? Is it different? Totally. Yeah. I mean, there's what's exciting and, to- and bizarre is how young the, young the luxury customer's gotten. And, and I think that we, what we're seeing, too, is a lot of these young you know, um, folks that are on social media, they're really driving trends. And I think it starts like this, that 17-year-old girl who's like, I really love luxury. I want to buy something authentic but I don't have a lot of money. I've got like $300 to spend. And so she's like, well, what can I get? And she's searching our site by lowest price. And she's like, this Fendi spy bag, it's not the hottest, most cool bag right now, but it's it's $250. So she buys okay. it and she puts up a TikTok and she's adorable. She's got really unique style and she rocks this thing. And then her friend's like, oh my gosh, sweet bag. Where'd you get that? And she's like, oh, I got it for 250 bucks. It's vintage. And then her friends are like, you can get a spy bag for $250? Like, yes. And then they do it. And then all of a sudden, Fendi's like, wow, look, everybody's carrying spy bags. They reissue the spy bag. And now it's like- I was going to say, it becomes a trend. Wait, do then does then that customer sell it back to you quickly? Are they almost using it like rental in a I way? Mean, but a lot of, we have a, a refresh program where people, you know, within- X number of days and up to a year, you can kind of refresh your, and people do that. But what what it really is, what's interesting is that when that happens and then the brands take notice, they reissue, reissue, it becomes popular. We've seen this with dozens of styles over the years and it's just becoming with TikTok and all that. It's more, it's faster. But um, then the the spy bag that was 250, now it's a thousand for the vintage. It just Mm -hmm. slowly over time kind of goes up. We saw that obviously with a lot of with talking about the Fendi baguette, with the you know, with all of the you know, Dior saddlebag and some of these, the Balenciaga motorcycle, like a lot of these bags that like went through a period where they're like, eh, not that popular, and on the resale, not not selling it, you know, kind of the at the ratio that other luxury and other items within their brand repertoire are selling. All of a sudden, some of these pieces kind of take a you know, just have a moment. 
And then that drags resale all the way up as well. And in resale, there really is, you know, it's almost like, I, you know, StockX has coined the stock, you know, stock market of things. And there, and, yeah. and at StockX, it makes sense to have a, 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 like a pinpoint, they can pinpoint the actual price on that day because they only deal with new product. At Fashion File and at, at, at Real Real and on eBay and, you know, on Thrilling, there's like a, a like a, a spectrum of, of prices for that particular item because we might have it in almost new condition and then we got the one with the bottle and nail polish spilled on in the inside and everything in between. And so depending on the condition, it kind of rises and falls over time and we see trends kind of go that direction. But that's for me, like my son, who's 18 years old, when I was in high school, that kid who's like, you know, he's kind of a jock and just, you know, he just wouldn't have been into luxury. And now he wants, because all he loves, all of the the rap artists and the, the sport, NBA guys that all he like admires so much, they all have the sweet, back, you know, Louis Vuitton backpack and they're wearing the, you know, the Hermes H belt and they've got the, you know, my, the best Birkin collection I've ever seen is Floyd Mayweather's. Guy, just Google the images. He <laughs> he can, he kills it with the, you know, with these HAC huge, it's not the Birkin, it's the, the larger, the HAC, but he just kills it. He's, you know, really, and so my son admires that so much and, and really has this aspiration to that, which when I was growing up, he would not be the audience. And in fact, it's just kind of bled through to, you know, it's not the only the, the super wealthy who are, who are really, you know, interested in carrying these things. Did you see, a, did you see an impact on the, on the baguettes after, after the Fendi show in New York last, was it two weeks ago? Yeah, we were already, I mean, I just think that's such an interesting story. Again, it's, it's exactly what we're saying because it, the Fendi baguette is one of those ones that just is really, was at one point, people would say, how much for this baguette? And we're like, $100. And they're like, I bought that for $1,200. And we're like, it's going to resell for 250 I mean, the reality is, and so it's so many, yeah. and then, but Fendi is so smart. I mean, I love, like, I love the Kim Jones, like, bring Mark Jacobs into it. How fun is that? Like, I, I just, you know, I, I just think that it's so smart when people take something that's iconic to your brand. How can you make it modern? Look at what people are doing and then really take a twist that's like honors the brand in yeah. a way that's like honors what's best about that, but in a really modern way. And it's just, and, and what we see in resale is it carries the whole line. And so you're going to see over time, you know, as the baguette continues to climb. And then I don't know, like some things it's ebb and flow, you know, it depends. They'll have moments and they'll, and, it, and it's, you know, it's, it's got a, <laughs> definitely has a course that it can run. But it sounds like you're, you didn't see an immediate pop in baguette sales from it. It takes a while. It takes a while. Yeah, it's not an immediate pop, but I, I would predict that. But yeah. Sarah, before we let you go, I, I want to um, change course a little bit. And I think our, our audience will be really interested to hear sort of your, your trajectory, you know, as a, I hate to say a female founder, as yeah. a founder, and, and how you've thought about, you know, um, growth and taking on capital. And you said you bootstrapped for 20 years before you got a mic. I mean, I, it, which is just tell me more, tell me everything. <laughs> well, the thing about the thing that makes the thing that's interesting about bootstrapping is when you bootstrap, you have to be profitable. So, and honestly, like, I didn't understand. I'm like, I actually don't understand how you can, how it makes, how you can keep the lights on if you're not profitable. Because as a bootstrapper, you just, you only have what you've got. And so what that does is it really helps you to stay disciplined. So it's, you know, so we've, we've still been profitable. And in resale, that's actually, 
the most differentiating point. When we yep. talk to anyone, they're like, wait, what? What? How is that, <laughs> you know? Um, but the reality is, again, like it got to a certain point where we were just growing slowly but surely in our world where we can't make mistakes. Like authentication is so key. And really it's, it, we've been very slow to add new brands over time, you know? Um, yeah. And and so we just have never wanted to grow faster than we could handle because the we're afraid the wheels are going to fall off. And we're just still growing or profitable. Like, why would we raise money? You know, like, why would you do that? So for yeah. a long time, we didn't. We got the opportunity, again, to have Neiman Marcus as a partner. And we're like, number one, like, as someone who started the business because of the, you know, the reasons I did, like, what an honor. Like, it's pinch mm-hmm. me Cinderella story. Like, I still, to this day, I'm like, so, you know, just really grateful and and at their insight, their forward thinking, they really do, um, you know, see the products they sell as investment pieces and how can they participate in extending the life. They've been doing mending and repairs in a significant way at, at you know, at scale for longer than anyone. So it's very, you know, I, I, it's, it's a perfect partner for us. But, you know, I, so that was just made all the sense. And then honestly, we're like, this should happen. We feel like we're doing it the right way. We feel like the foundation, again, like our dedication to Fashion File University, to our training around, you know, really the education piece around what, you know, the learning around, again, identifying the products with specificity and being really thoughtful about, you know, each individual item, pricing it accordingly based on, again, what's that, what are we looking at? What's the hardware? What's the textile? All those things make a difference in the price and the authenticity. We like, we are allowing ourselves to kind of get quashed down because we have no awareness because there's so many people raising money to get the awareness. And we're like, you know what? Let's just, let's oh. go for it. Let's go for it. Because we, um, 2010, um, Entrepreneur Magazine called Fashion File one of the smartest, most hands-down brilliant companies on their radar. And then we went like under the radar for 10 years. And so we're like, let's not do that. Let, let, let's like go for it, you know? Because mm. if in, in a world where there's no, um, you know, competitive forces, you can just continue to rise a little get organic by. thing and get by, but there's a certain point where we want to we we believe and and it's not that I believe it's a it's a it's a one one you know winner game. I don't at all. Mm-hmm. It's just that if we want to grow, we felt like it was it was important to get the right partners on board to help us to do that, and we've done it. And that doesn't mean that these these other players are not going to be highly successful. And we literally wish them luck. I'm literally supporting them with my paycheck, <laughs> like yeah. selling with them and buying from them. But, um, but that, you know, that, um, and I might, for my birthday, actually this is a true story. I got a, a vintage t-shirt that was from my alma mater. That's from like 1980 something that my sister got on thrilling. So it's full. <laughs> no way. It was my, oh, it was my, that's so great. Yeah. So again, like all the different, all the different players, like we all are needed. I believe it's the better way to shop. I really 100% believe we should all buy, be buying less, buying better quality, taking care of it, making the repair yourself. Sew the button on, please. Learn how to, like these old skills that I actually was growing, I grew up in the old era. So I can, I actually have some of these, but I'm trying to teach my kids, you know, (laughs) to value it enough to repair it, if not get it done keep it longer, and then when you're not done, share it with someone else. Okay, so have we agreed here that we now have a four-way darning club? I am super excited. Yep, absolutely. I'm available. Hey, I'm totally in. 
Sarah, if I could, I know we're completely out of time. Um, I just wanted to peer into the future a little bit more with you about Fashion File. I mean, you're the first luxury resale platform, massively successful, as we just talked about. Forbes estimated your revenue between 450 to 500 million recently. I know you can't confirm or deny. Just raise one eyebrow if it's true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cough twice. Um, <laughs> I'm just curious, you know, what what are your most ambitious goals for Fashion File in 20 years? How would you want your how would you want folks to be interacting with your brand? And then, you know, would going public ever be a potential consideration? Yeah, I mean, the public markets are such a mess right now. Like every yeah. day I open my Robin Hood, and I'm like, oh my gosh, come on. My, me too. I don't even look at it anymore. And, and, don't. Right. Don't ever look in a down market. Just close your eyes and keep I, going. I like buy and sell from all of our, you know, my favorite like resale partners, but I also like am an investor in all of those platforms. And I'm like, what the heck? This makes no sense. Like, come on. And so I, I believe... I believe we're going back up on that. But um, but at Fashion File, like, nobody knows who we are. Like, you you gave those, rever- I mean, in relative speak, you gave those, you know, those numbers, which I can neither confirm nor, nor deny. But but you're, you know, let's say you're close. You're, you're right in there. But anyway, <laughs> but the point is. An exclusive for hot, for hot buttons. <laughs> you're sponsoring our darning club. <laughs> but nobody knows who we are. We have very little awareness. And so really, you know, we are, you know, we, our vision for the future is to be the, the sought out brand for ultra luxury buying and selling you know, worldwide, like there's nobody who's doing what we're doing in Europe and the Middle East as far as like our model, just making it easy. There's a lot of things that are very hard. If you have a Rolex that you want to sell, we deal with people all the time. They've tried to sell themselves. People deal with stolen credit cards. You ship it. The person's, they get a box and it's got inside the box, it's got a can of Coke and no, no Rolex and bait and switch counterfeits. All these, we take all the stress out of that. And for the, for the luxury seller, we provide a service that just nobody else is providing at this level. Um, and so, you know, we hope to be able to be, again, have general awareness and provide that service worldwide. That's kind of our whole, our goal. So we're going to see you with a pop-up store in Qatar at the World Cup, right? I hope so. <laughs> I, I really hope. I love the Middle East. I think that is a real opportunity. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. yeah. Especially for your market. Totally. I, mean. I know. Okay, so we got a little scoop, a couple little scoops here out of you, Sarah. <laughs> Listen, I I got to thank you. This was uh, really fun. I hope you will come back sometime, like when you go to the Middle East or next time you darn well, socks. Exactly, exactly. It's super pleasure. Thank you. That was awesome. No, pleasure was literally mine. So thank you so much for the invite. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, it's time for What's Pushing Our Buttons. I'll go first if you don't mind. Um, I know I talked about Milan Fashion Week. I had a great time there, saw some great stuff, but I've got to say it was so unsustainable. It was another one of these weeks where I sat there and I looked at the Jill Sanders show. They they built a box in the middle of a golf field kind of place. They built a building, actually, and they covered the entire ground with shards of... um, Black, it was like glass, but not sharp. It was sort of like the, what you might see in the bottom of a fishbowl. But it's a it's a building, and the entire flooring was covered with this, several wow. inches deep. The models walked in. It looked sort of like mud. And uh, I talked to somebody after the show. What's happening with all that stuff? Landfill. All of it. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. And then I went from there to the Ferragamo show, where I 
uh, shredded my meniscus. <laughs> and um, and uh, the entire courtyard of a large building in central Milan was covered in red beaded glass, whatever stuff, also probably. And they'd covered this this building in walls. So it was just... You know, uh, they they listened to people's calls to sex Milan up and make it exciting, but they seem to have forgotten that we make we fill landfills every single fashion week, and it's heartbreaking. Back to business as usual, in other words. In other words, exactly, Sheila. Well, um, my hot button is that every day I'm pissed for a new reason that we happen to be off the week the Don't Worry Darling drama really kicked off, <laughs> and we couldn't do. <laughs> like yeah. 30 minutes on it because first of all I find out that Christina lives near Chris Pine and how'd you find that out well you told did us did I say that told oh, us. Did I? <laughs> <laughs> who told you oh, I've I got did. trackers okay. on all I of you that. Yeah. Um, and then we could have incorporated how the stylist got into it at the Venice Film Festival about over Olivia and Florence but but now I can bring it up because they had their New York City um, red carpet premiere last week, and one of the actors, Asif Ali, posted this hilarious TikTok of him shopping for his outfit at Goodwill, and he said he wants to become a discount fashion icon. And he bought a $20 suit, and he looked fabulous. He um, did look fabulous. He looked he great. Awesome. Um, so that's my excuse <laughs> of bringing it back up, because I'm still mad that we didn't get to talk about it. But he did circularity, so we love him. We right, love exactly. him. Um, my hot button is unfashion related, but I was talking to someone during Climate Week um, about ridiculous technology that people are selling to consumers that make us all feel better that we're doing something sustainable that and we're, and we're not. And one of the things that he brought up, and it's something that's crossed my Instagram feed because they know who I am a lot, is the Lomi composter. And he explained to me that this it's this thing that you buy. I almost bought one seriously. Like it's like I, I was like I, I it looks so cool. Uh, you you can compost things right in your kitchen. Ew. Like it yeah. But it's it's a machine. Okay. And he was telling me how it takes. It's basically like putting your food in an oven. The energy that it takes. Oh my god. To oh, wow. like burn this stuff is just totally nets out any positive impacts that the product would have. It's just That's so like dumb. this is not. Like, just regular compost or, or not at all. Don't, like, heat up your food. Did you engage with a brand on it uh, about that? Not yet, but maybe they uh, – we, Lomi, call us. If, if we're yeah. wrong, let us know. <laughs> if we're not wrong. That's why composters are black plastic things you stick in the backyard. Or, or I understand some buildings in New York have them on the roof that they're starting oh. to do that in some buildings. I haven't seen that. super cool. Interesting. That is all for the show, folks. Please support us by following us on Twitter at Hot Buttons Pod and now on Instagram at hotbuttons.pod. Or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com or leave us a voicemail at our new call-in line. It's at 508-622-5361. So give us a call. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Shilla Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Villefranc and Sean Marquand. Cecily Meza-Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. 
Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch up with you next week. Just a moment of silence for the hand-blown glass butt plug. You really have to pay attention to the order you put those words in. You really do. You really do. Take care when discussing this 